And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. The question this morning is that given that fewer and fewer people in our country would say that they are Christian, are we wise to take Jesus seriously? Now I don't know about you, but I, I like uh, books and films about the American Wild West. The more formulaic, the better. In any Western, usually early on, tension is introduced, which then builds my wife thinks incredibly slowly, to a final showdown. If we've been here recently, in the book of Exodus, we will know that we've already had tension. And it's clear that we're heading to a final showdown. The tension is because on one side, we have God's promises to his people. At the end of chapter 2, you may remember that we... We read about God remembering his covenant to his people. It's time for them to leave Egypt and go to the promised land. But on the other side, there is Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the, the God king of Egypt. And he, unsurprisingly, doesn't want his slave labor force to go. It's a showdown we're heading for. And just in case we're in any doubt, this isn't a showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. It's a showdown between God and Pharaoh. So in the, the passage that Stuart just read for us, verse 1, God says to Moses, I have. Verse 3, I will, says the Lord. Verse 4, I will. Verse 5, I stretch out and bring. It's a showdown between God and Pharaoh. Where do Moses and Aaron fit in? Well, they, verse 2, are to speak God's commands. They're to be God's mouthpieces. So the stage is set. What's going to happen? Well, verses 2 to 5 of that passage that Stuart read tell us what's going to happen. They're, if you like, a synopsis of the next few chapters of Exodus. So through these uh, two 80-year-olds, what's going to happen is that God will tell Pharaoh to let his people go. Then Pharaoh is going to refuse, verse 3. God's then going to do signs and wonders and judgments. Those are the plagues. And the result will be that God's people will go. And that, verse 5, the Egyptians will know that God is the Lord. 
Well, today we're covering our passage, thank you, Matt, is the next five chapters of the book of Exodus. But rather than Stuart reading all of them, you'll be pleased to know we're just going to look at one. We're going to read one of the plagues, and then we'll step back and see the bigger picture. So, Stuart, if you'd like to come back up and read chapter 8, and it's the fourth plague, the plague of flies, and it's on page 61. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourselves to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh, and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. <coughs> but Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh from his servants and from his people, not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. So this is the, the, the fourth plague. Let's notice some of the features. Uh, first of all, there's a command, isn't there, in verse 20? Uh, at least six times through these plagues, we record, it's recorded that Pharaoh is told to let the people go. I'm just thinking on this. I wonder if we'd ask the Israelites what they would have said their problem was. See, I think most of them would have said it's the cruel hardship that Pharaoh is imposing on them. Now, of course, we, we've read earlier that God cares about the oppression of his people. But it's interesting, isn't it? God doesn't say to Pharaoh, treat my people nicely. He says, let my people go. God's promise to Abraham is not to give them comfort in a foreign land. 
it's Egypt is not to be their final destination. And just in passing, I don't know what we think our biggest concern is. I guess we can, we can tell that by our prayers. But it's just worth reminding ourselves, isn't it, that God's purpose for us is not to make us comfortable in a world that's passing away. This world is not our final destination. That's just in passing. So Pharaoh tells, uh, Moses tells Pharaoh to let the people go. And then secondly, there's a warning, verse 21. With some of the plagues, as with this one, Pharaoh gets a warning of what's going to happen if he doesn't let the people go. And he's warned that there will be swarms of flies. Pharaoh clearly refuses. So verse 24, flies come. Uh, great swarms of them, we're told. What sorts of flies? Well, we're not sure, but they were more than a nuisance. Verse 24 tells us that the land was ruined. Uh, but not all the land. Another feature of this plague is that Goshen, Goshen, where my people dwell, is spared. I think there's a map coming up to show that's um, where we think the, the, the people of uh, God's people were living in uh, Egypt. Well, this is the first of, of a number of plagues where we're told that specifically there's a distinction between what happens to the Israelites and the Egyptians. So verse 23, it's a division between my people and your people. Uh, it's the same later with uh, the livestock and the hail and the darkness. And then Pharaoh negotiates, verse 25, it seems that Pharaoh is happy for the Israelites to worship God as long as that doesn't interfere with his own plans. At this stage, Pharaoh doesn't see why he should listen or have to listen to the God of the Hebrews. If you like, as far as he's concerned, the God of Hebrews, the Hebrews has got no authority on Egyptian soil. And then Moses has this slightly sort of strange answer. Uh, but what's absolutely clear is that they must leave, verse 27. Because if God's going to keep his promise, then they have to go. Uh, fed up with the flies, Pharaoh agrees to let the people go. Verse 31, the flies are then removed. And then verse 32, Pharaoh hardens his heart and once again, once the problem has gone, Pharaoh then goes back on his word. Uh, we thought about this last week, but in these chapters of Exodus, we, we hear a lot about Pharaoh's heart, that it was hardened, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I'm not going to repeat what was uh, said last week, but just to remind us that, that those descriptions of what was happening to Pharaoh's heart are not contradictory. If it's helpful, I gather that one way of translating the word hardened is strengthened. So the idea is that the direction of Pharaoh's heart is not changed, but it's just reinforced. So that's what happens when the flies come. So stepping back, from the flies and, and the plagues. The question then is, what's the point of the fly of, of, the, of the plagues? When the first readers were reading this uh, account of the book of Exodus again later on, what would they have wanted to hear? Well, verse 22 is a key verse. It's our answer. 
Moses is to tell Pharaoh that on that day, verse 22, I'll set apart the land of Goshen, Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Through these plagues, God is showing Pharaoh that he is the Lord, capital letters, I am the great I am, the only God. Actually, if we were to look through these chapters, we find it isn't just Pharaoh who needs to know who the Lord is. We may remember back in chapter 3, it was Moses. And then in chapter 6, verse 7, it was the Israelites. And in chapter 7, verse 5, it was the Egyptians, we're told, who need to know. And here it's Pharaoh. And in chapter 10, verse 2, it's the generations to come, which I think pretty much covers everybody. The point is, whoever we are, we all need to know who God is. And the plagues show us who God is. How does that work? How do the plagues show us who God is, that God is the Lord? Well, most obviously, the plagues reveal the God who is in supreme control. We've got a slide coming up of uh, what the first nine plagues. It's a cartoon slide, but there's nothing funny about these plagues. But as we look at those plagues, what do they do? They show us God's complete control over water, air, land, animals, light, dark, humans. Both in bringing the plagues and in stopping the plagues, God shows he's in control. Some of those plagues we might think might be sort of natural phenomena. They might be linked so, for example, blood in the river means that the frogs come out of the river onto the land, they then they die, then the flies come, and so on. But the warnings and the timings of the plagues make it abundantly clear that it is God who is in supreme control of what is happening in Egypt. You see, it's not the Egyptian magicians. Uh, initially, they seemed to be able to compete with the Lord, and they were able to produce frogs, for example. But by the third plague, they had to concede, this is the finger of God. And it's not the Egyptian gods either. One Egyptian god was associated with the River Nile, but the River Nile is powerless in the face of the Lord. We live in an era of league tables, but it isn't that there's a league table of gods. And the God of the Hebrews has just shown Pharaoh that he is better than his gods. There is no league table. There is only one God, and he is the God of the Hebrews. He's in supreme control. The plagues also reveal a God who judges. Remember chapter 7, verse 4 that we, we started with? Pharaoh won't listen to you. Moses is to say, then I'll lay my hands on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people of children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God says to to Moses and Aaron, that's what he'll do. Great acts of judgment. Yes, they're, they're miracles. Yes, they're supernatural. But at heart, they are acts of judgment. Judgment on Pharaoh and judgment on his people, 
and judgment. If you just want to turn over to chapter 12, verse 12, judgment to on Pharaoh's gods. Chapter 12, verse 12. This is the, as we get to the final plague, I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. God is a God who judges. And in case we missed it, God's judgment isn't just a sort of slap on the wrist. These plagues are awful because they are nothing less than the reversal of creation. Each plague reintroduces chaos into creation. So back in Genesis, there was darkness, which then became light. Well, that's reversed in chapter 10. In Genesis, waters teemed with living creatures. Well, in chapter 7, that's reversed. Animals are meant to be subject to man, but the plagues show they are out of control. And in the final plague, well, well, what happened in Genesis? Life was created. And in the final plague, the Lord brings death, not life. God is revealed as a God who judges. And then thirdly, God, the, the, the plagues reveal a God who rescues. We've already begun to see that as creation unravels around Pharaoh, and as we see with the plague of flies, there's a distinction between what happens to God's people and what happens to the Egyptians. And as we'll see next week, amidst the, the judgment, there's a merciful rescue for God's chosen people. And it's a, a rescue and a mercy that we'll see in chapter 12. It actually extends to some of the Egyptians if they'll trust him. So this is what God did. He showed to Pharaoh that he is the Lord. The Lord who is in supreme control, who judges and who rescues. But of course that was three, <clears throat> three and a half thousand years ago. What use is that knowledge to later followers of God? Some people, I think, like to drive a wedge between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. So they say, well, I don't like the God of the Old Testament, all that fire and brimstone stuff, but actually I love the sort of teaching of Jesus. But God doesn't change. He is the eternal I am. And because he never changes, he never stops being in control, he never stops judging. He never stops rescuing. 2,000 years ago, God came to earth in the person of Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, what do we see? Well, unsurprisingly, we see exactly what the Lord showed the Egyptians all those years ago. We see Jesus, who is in supreme control. Gospel accounts make it clear, don't they, that as Jesus came to earth, he showed complete control over nature and people. Control over the wind and the waves. Who is this that the wind and waves obey him, the disciples asked. He showed control over sickness and disease and death. He was in control then, and Jesus Christ is in control now. 
He is the same yesterday and today and forever. After Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians that in him, all things hold together. He is in control. The writer to the Hebrews, he, he upholds, present tense, this is after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, he upholds all the universe by the word of his power. We've just been singing, haven't we? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Why? Because Jesus is in control. Um, there's a quotation. I apologize if this has been overquoted. Um, I, I sort of, I've read it before, and then I thought, well, maybe, maybe we've heard it too much. But there's a, uh, there's a Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who, who said this, that there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Pharaoh had to learn that the God of the Hebrews was not a title for some little local deity who only had authority in his area. We need to realize that Jesus, Jesus is not just Lord for the Christians. He's the Lord of all. And that has huge implications. He's not one option amongst many gods or religions. He's not top of the table because there is no table. He is the only Lord. It's a challenge for any of us, I think, isn't it, who, like Pharaoh, don't see why we should have to listen to Jesus. Maybe we've got other gods that, that, that we think will deliver. Don't know what they could be. Different for each of us. Things that we think will, will see us through. That we can depend on. Or, or maybe we're like that. Maybe we're with a man in the office who says, well, actually, yeah, I'm pleased that you believe. I think it's great that you've got something to hang on to, a support, a crutch when you need it. But actually, that's no, not for me. Or maybe with that uh, boy or girl at school who says, well, well, I hear the teaching of Jesus, but no way is Jesus going to teach me how to live my life. Tim Chester has written uh, quite a lot of helpful stuff on the book of Exodus. And he says this, the nine plagues are a lecture against religious pluralism, the belief that all religions are valid. And they're also a lecture against personal autonomy, the belief that I have the right to live how I like. It's also a challenge for any of us, I think, who, like Pharaoh, think that we, we, we might want to negotiate with God. Maybe there's something in our lives that actually we're just not that keen on God interfering with, actually. I don't know if you um, watched the program Dragon's Den. Would-be entrepreneurs come into the, to the den to ask for money from these five wealthy people in return for handing over a share of uh, the business that they're running. And there was a nice moment. I don't know. There was an interesting moment relatively recently in one that I was watching. Um, an entrepreneur came in, and, and, and he'd received just one offer. Four dragons said no. And only one, Sarah Davis, had said, yeah, I'll, um, 
I'll give you all the money, but of course wanted a significant share of the business. At which point, this uh, entrepreneur said um, he'd like to negotiate. And this nice moment, Sarah Davis looked at him and he said, I'll point out to you the situation you're in. I hold all the aces, you hold none. Good luck with that negotiation. Jesus is in supreme control. My response? Well, it's surely humility. It's not negotiation. It's obedience, isn't it? He is the Lord. But also, I think, confidence. I don't know about, I don't know about you, but when I think about maybe trying to... to tell people somewhere about Jesus, I sort of feel as if I'm leaping out into completely enemy territory and it's a sort of almost a no-go area. And there's an element, obviously, of truth in that. The world is in the, the grip of the evil one. But sometimes in my thinking, I sort of think, well, okay, Jesus, yeah, okay, he's in charge in church. It's fine, it's good here. And, yep, it's okay at home. But then I think, well, down the streets and the office and the school... Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He's in control. And he judges. One glance at our world tells us that all is not well. We know that. Daily we're going to hear, of, and we do, of disasters, natural and man-made, to say nothing of, of sickness and death. Why is that? It's because we live between Genesis chapter 3 and Revelation chapter 21. We live in a world which is the result and consequence of sin in Genesis chapter 3, and we're not yet in the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. We live in a world that is currently under the curse of sin and judgment of God. Romans 8 describes creation groaning. But one day... One day that will all be over. Why? Well, as it was for the Egyptians, one day for the world there'll be a final judgment. And the judge, you've guessed it, is Jesus. Acts 17 tells us that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We might have wondered what the point of the first nine plagues was, given that it seemed to be it was the tenth that sort of worked. Egypt, under those first nine plagues, is a picture for us, a reality for them, of life under the judgment of God. Those first nine plagues are a foretaste, a warning of judgment to come. This week it's been clear, as I've said, that we're living in a world that's, that's groaning. We, we might wonder why we continue to live in a world that is under the judgment of God. Why hasn't God's final judgment happened? And the answer lies in the severe 
and strange kindness of God. It's because God, in his mercy, is giving his world time to repent. The Apostle Peter explains that God's judgment hasn't finally come because the Lord is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come, all should reach repentance. I don't know what our reaction was to the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Jesus was once asked, wasn't he, about a tower that collapsed? And his reply, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How do we react to suffering like this? Well, we obviously try to do what we can to relieve the suffering. We talk to uh, Martin and Yancey. We, we help. We pray. We pray for this, the suffering. We pray for the rescuers. But beyond that, well, the right response, surely, isn't it, to, for our world, is to wake up. To wake up to the reality that we do live in this world that is under judgment. A world that is heading for a final judgment. C.S. Lewis described suffering, didn't he, as, as God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we need to wake up. We need to repent of our sin. To sorrow that this world is in the state that it's in because of sin. And our sin. Repentance, it's not a, a one-off thing that I did 45 years ago when I began to follow Jesus. It's an attitude, a constant attitude of turning from sin, turning to Christ. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Jesus is the one who judges. And then Jesus is the one who rescues his people. As we've thought before, God, as he judges, he rescues the ninth plague of darkness it was not the last time, was it, that darkness came on the land in judgment? More on this next week. But 1,500 years later, there was another day when darkness fell on the land and a lamb died as God exercised his judgment. That was Good Friday. And the judgment was falling not on God's enemies, but on the Lord Jesus, whose name means Saviour. And that act of, of judgment made rescue from the coming judgment possible. That coming judgment, which, awful as it will be, holds no terror for those who are following Jesus. Paul tells the Christians in Rome, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the meantime, how do rescued people live? Back to Exodus 8, verse 20, for a final time. 
Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh. As he goes out to the water, say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may <coughs> serve me. Jesus is taking a people to himself. In Exodus, the people of Israel are set free, but they're not free, if you notice, they're not set free into a vacuum. Oh, great, now what do we do? God's chosen people, as they go together towards the promised land, what do they do? They are to serve the Lord. As people here, forgiven by Jesus, we're set free. Not from slavery in Egypt, but freedom from the guilt of our sin. But like the Israelites, Jesus doesn't just set us free into a vacuum. He sets us free as his people together to serve him and worship him. So this week, as we head out, as we keep heading towards the new heavens and the new earth, are we going to be this week serving the Lord Jesus together? Jesus Christ is the Lord who is in supreme control. He judges and rescues. Are we wise to take him seriously? Bit of a daft question, really. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have set the Lord Jesus on the throne of heaven. Thank you that he is in control. Thank you that he is the perfect judge and thank you that he is our savior. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might love him more and serve him better for his sake.